Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is part one of two, the $5 billion breakaway that led to a $125 million acquisition deal, a conversation with Mark Sear and David Ho, managing partners of Evoke Advisors. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you're not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, please feel free to share it widely. In 2008, the wealth management industry was in the midst of historic change. Subprime mortgages and a U.S. economy in recession would pave the way for an evolution and open the doors to what would become the biggest game changer for advisors and clients alike. That is the migration to the independent space. Because in May of 2008, Just four months before Bank of America would acquire Merrill Lynch, one of the biggest breakaway stories hit the street. Mark Sear and David Ho, managing more than $5 billion in assets at the time, would leave Merrill, becoming amongst an exclusive group of pioneers of the independent movement that would forever change the face of wealth management. The team began their journey at Goldman Sachs, leaving in 1997 to join Merrill, with reported $1.6 billion in assets and a good deal of knowledge in working with ultra-high net worth clients. After their departure from Merrill in 08, they formed RIA Luminous Capital and grew it to more than $5 billion in assets before making history again in 2012. In 2012 is when they sold the firm to First Republic Bank, itself a Merrill breakaway of sorts, for a headline-making deal of $125 million, which even Liz Nesvold, the iconic investment banker who represented First Republic in the acquisition, called a marquee deal. But this incredible story doesn't end there, because in 2019, it was announced that the $17 billion Luminous team would be leaving First Republic with Sear and Ho forming a new RIA called Evoke Advisors. Their story is nothing short of amazing on so many levels. First off, to make the leap back in 2008 at a time when independence was in its infancy meant taking the biggest leap of faith ever. The cottage industry designed to support breakaways was non-existent. It was a build-your-own world. And as a matter of fact, early on in this podcast series, I interviewed Matt Sonnen, who helped Luminous build their firm from the ground up, and he shared what it was like back in the day. It's a great interview, so be sure to visit our podcast page to listen to it. But today, companies like Matt Sonnen's PFI Advisors, plus a plethora of technology, platform, and service providers, exist to handle the heavy lift that it takes to build an independent firm. Yet even with all of the support available, to split the team up and make the leap again, well, take some extraordinary metal. No doubt, 
It's trailblazers like Mark and David who set in motion a movement that has incredible momentum, with more and more advisors opting for the freedom and flexibility of independence every day. What drove them to make the leap at a time when it certainly wasn't in vogue to do so? And then why break away again? Why did they sell Luminous when they did? What did their clients say? What does it take to build a firm and command the price that First Republic paid? And so much more. Actually, there are so many lessons to be learned from their story that we've decided to release it in two parts. So in this episode, we take a step back with Mark and David to talk about their break from Merrill and later the acquisition by First Republic. In part two, we'll dig deeper into their departure from the bank, their M&A plans for Evoke, and best practices around building a sophisticated multifamily office. Let's jump to it. So I feel like I'm in the presence of wealth management royalty, and I'd like to welcome Mark Sear and David Ho to this show. Guys, thank you so much for making the time to be with me today. Thanks for having us, Mindy. Yeah, thank you so much. Pleasure. All right, lots to unpack, so let's get to it. You guys made wealth management history in 2008 when you left Merrill Lynch to launch Luminous Capital as an RIA, especially at a time when it just wasn't in vogue to do so. Independence was not the mainstream choice that it is today. And I have so many questions for you, but let's start at the beginning. So tell us a little bit about yourselves, both of you. Mark, you want to take that first? Sure. Yeah, David and I met in the early 90s at Goldman Sachs. I was a year behind David, and I had uh, actually my first day of work, I'd gotten there like three hours too early, and David was gracious enough to pull me aside, didn't know who I was, but said, you must be the new guy, which I was. And he took me to breakfast and sort of steadied me on my first day, and we became good friends. And you know that was uh, about 28 years ago, I think now, 27 years ago. So David and I have known each other a long time before that. Both David and I went to business school. I think David was an Anderson grad and a UCLA undergrad, so he he stayed in LA, and I I was up in Northern California. But uh, you know, started at Goldman Sachs and spent five years there together on a team with two other individuals. Uh, migrated to Merrill Lynch, spent eleven years there. We helped them grow what's today is known as PBIG, the private banking and investment group. Had a wonderful eleven year career there, sixteen years as broker dealers. But I think it became clear to both of us that. Um, in our opinion, if we were going to best serve our clients, that being a fiduciary and being an RIA was a superior model than being part of a broker-dealer. So we left in, uh, in 19, uh, 2008 to form Luminous, had a fabulous run at Luminous, which I'm sure we'll talk about, then um, ended up selling the First Republic Bank, which um, was a wonderful period as well, but different. And then just recently, as you know, Mindy, we've left last June, June 1st, to found Evoke Wealth. And I know we'll talk about all these topics, but it's been a really interesting year and three or four months starting a new firm, running into COVID. And, and I know we'll hit all these topics, but that's sort of a that's sort of a quick background from my perspective. I didn't know if you wanted us to go back any further. No, perfect. David? Uh, I'll go back a little further. Um, I'm a son of uh, Chinese immigrants who came here. My father <clears throat> got his PhD here, and uh, so I was first to to be born in the U.S., and raised here and with my, my brother, who was actually born in Taiwan. So I went to the UCLA undergrad, as Mark mentioned, went to UCLA Business School, met Mark at Goldman Sachs, as he mentioned, and we built an incredibly good team of folks that helped us to manage our, our clients' wealth and learned 
a lot at Goldman Sachs and uh, Merrill Lynch over the years and um, ultimately figured out that uh, we felt that we could do it better, as Mark has mentioned, and we'll go into more details. But been very fortunate to have the careers that we have had and very uh, excited about what we're doing here today. Yeah, and we will talk about it all. Can't wait to hear. You have certainly had an interesting career to date and lots more to come. So let's first start with Luminous Capital. I mean, I remember reading with great interest in 2008 when you guys launched Luminous because it was such an out-of-the-box move. So how big did the RIA Luminous get? And if I recall, it was you were managing more assets when you guys left Merrill um, than you were when you launched Luminous. So you left some assets behind. And then how big did Luminous get? Okay. Um, So... I think the asset question is always challenging in our industry because there are different methods of thinking about assets under management. Uh, there's also man- assets under advisement, of course, and then there's in the brokerage firms, there's just assets sitting in your accounts. So I think the numbers get kind of thrown around all the time and they're, they're a little bit confusing. So when we were at Merrill, we had um, five or $6 billion in assets, and that would be a lot of different uh, pension plan accounts or options accounts and things like that. So, uh, but really when we launched Luminous, the, the firm, as far as assets under management, traditional assets under management was, was about 1.8 billion, I think 1.7, 1.8 billion at the end of the day. And so that's, that's the launch size of, uh, of Luminous Capital eventually grew to just under $6 billion when First Republic acquired us. Yeah. Okay, so what was going on at Merrill at the time that made you opt to leave? I guess, again, an out-of-the-box move at the time, a really out-of-the-box move at the time. So what were the pushes and pulls that drove you? Well, there was a lot going on back then, right? (laughs) I mean, before the coronavirus issue, I think it might have been the most... um, Fraught. Most, uh, fraught and uh, <laughs> crazy time in the world for financial uh, services. So there was a lot going on then. But but even before the 2008 crisis, mortgage crisis, subprime mortgage crisis, you know, our team had for years struggled with the fact that we were in a broker dealer. And we have a lot of friends at broker dealers. You know, there are a lot of great people who work in the broker dealers. So I want to be very careful about how to explain this because it's not trying to attack the, the model at all. It's just that it's different. The broker-dealer model is one of uh, where there are conflicts, whether they're smaller or larger be- because of the, the person whose you know, business it is uh, and how they run their business. It's so varied. That's one of the beauties of our business is that you, know, you can create a business in the brokerage firms where you only sell insurance if you want to. So it was for us, though, essentially, we felt as though that we really wanted to be fiduciaries to our clients. We wanted to be fiduciary advisor, which means that we wanted to leave the brokerage model, never have any conflict as far as how we get compensated. Uh, As you know, Mindy, in our registered uh, RIA, registered investment advisory structure, the only way we can get compensated is by our clients on a fee basis. So there is no trailers from mutual funds or other payments that get paid to to us uh, as they are, would be potentially in most broker-dealer structures. So the impetus was way before 2008, we were thinking about that, and it just culminated in 2008 and just happened to be a few other straws that broke the camel back that, with regards to the subprime mortgage crisis that kind of expedited our departure. 
If I could just add, Mindy, if that's okay, I Go just want to make sure it's clear. You know, your question is what was going on at Merrill that made us, you know, think about leaving. And I, and I just want to be clear. I think it was 10% or less what was going on at Merrill and 90% plus that we thought strategically the model of being a registered investment advisor, a fiduciary, um, where we were only paid by our client, paid by our clients, was a superior way to spend our time and our energy. It was, it was unquestionably the driving force was we wanted to improve the client relationships. Not that somehow, I mean, look, it was the, the subprime mortgage thing was certainly a distraction, but it wasn't like, oh my gosh, that's so bad. We're going to leave because of it. We, we were talking about leaving years before um, strategic for strategic reasons. I think that's a great point that we counsel advisors like that all the time. Okay, you're frustrated. How much of it is your firm specific and how much it is, is it just, it is what it is. It's because of the industry. It's because of the regulatory environment. It's, it would be the same no matter where you moved. But I guess a question, you know, today the drumbeat of being a fiduciary is loud and clear. But it wasn't in those days. And the notion of it's not that good advisors didn't see themselves as always putting their clients first, but the term the fiduciary standard or being a fiduciary just wasn't as mainstream as it was. And so I guess why independence then? Like, where did you get your courage? Where did it come from? For me, it wasn't seen at the time as courage. It never occurred to me that this was a courageous move. Um, We were without question. Um, and at the time it wasn't just David and I, we had other partners. And I remember sitting with this big whiteboard about, we used to have these strategy sessions, like what is it about this industry that we think makes great you know, advisory and what is it we think are bad? And it was clear that the model of being a registered investment advisor had all the parts that made it great and none of the parts that made it bad. And so when we thought about how to, you know, this time think about it, we're probably you know, I'm going back um, 14, 15 years. So I'm in my early 40s and I'm really energized. And I'm thinking, you know, I use this term, we want to change the world. And we really thought that the model was where the world was going to go, that eventually everybody would get their advice for a fee and that people would have the ability to manage the portfolios with all the right tools, not just the tools that were created by their broker dealer. And so, I mean, I think that we did it because we looked around the corner and said, this is where the world's going. Let's get ahead of it. We loved investing and we thought that we could just do much more on the investment side by being independent. So I remember that what we call the war room, which is where we had this mm-hmm. whiteboard of all the, the ideas and it that went from ideas to how are we going to build a firm? What's it going to stand for? What's it going to be like? How are we going to, what's the business model look like? And um, never in those meetings was there fear. It was never like, wow, this is crazy. We shouldn't do this. It was always excitement about creating a new paradigm for wealthy families. And I think uh, that gave us the motivation. What's so interesting about that is it sounds like what you're saying is you were so clear in the vision, in what you believed was best for your clients, that the move to independence wasn't about courage or overcoming fear. It just became an imperative. I would characterize it by saying that, you know, our partner, Alex Shahidi, he's our North Star. And I think all of us have the, the same kind of goals, but I think uh, Alex is our culture carrier and that always tried to do what's right for the client. So. When we were at Goldman, as an example, you know, my father, again, he was an engineer and he didn't really know Goldman Sachs and at all. When I, when I went to business school, most of my, my brother's a doctor and my cousins are all doctors and kind of, you know, I was in business school. That was kind of a strange thing for him. And when I was at, got to Goldman, I remember my father felt like, oh, well, Goldman Sachs, I hear it's a really good firm and you're going to be okay. I don't have to worry about you. And when I told him I was leaving Goldman and he was very surprised, like, why would you leave such a great firm? And 
The reason was because at that time, Goldman Sachs was all internal product, right? It was basically, there was no other product you could use. It was all Goldman Sachs products. And we felt as though that model didn't work. And we did go to Merrill because we didn't have the courage at that time in the young years of our career to start an RAA. I look back and I wish I would have because I wasted so many years in the broker-dealer model. But but the reality is we didn't have the courage and the experience at that time. And we went to Merrill because Merrill said, look, you can use any, any manager you want to use on our platform. There's thousands of them. And you don't have to use a single Merrill Lynch product. So Merrill actually at that time was quite a breath of fresh air for us because there was no need to use any internal product. And if you think about the departure to, to Luminous at the time was another step in that same direction saying, okay, well, now it's even more pure because the platform is now not only are you not, are not, not using any of your own products, but you are being paid solely as an advisor as opposed to having trailers and, and those other conflicted ways of getting compensated by the product provider. So it's essentially a progression. And that progression you know, has been very, very consistent over our careers, I believe. But David, let me ask you a follow-up question to that. So a lot of people tell us that, that the move out of Goldman, even today, which is much less about proprietary product and closer to an open architecture, but the move to a more traditional wealth management firm or independence feels like a breath of fresh air. But if in fact Merrill was allowing you to access an open architecture in terms of investment solutions, what were the limitations you were feeling at the time that made it clear there was a better way to serve clients? There's two other limitations. One is the size of the firm. We spend our time a lot here today to evoke advisors and, and at Luminous as well, searching out investments that are not necessarily you know, multiple billions of, of dollars invested in them. They're not typically the really super large investment managers. I'm talking more on the alternative side than the public side. So when you have an organization that has a trillion dollars in assets, you tend to look for alternative investments that will take at least a billion or two billion or a billion dollars plus from you as an organization. What we're trying to do here, when we find an alternative investment that we like or strategy, it's closer to 50 million to 100 million. So just by definition, one of the challenges of the larger asset base, it becomes very, very stifling from ability to find what we think are good outperforming, outperforming managers. The other thing is that when you're in a broker dealer, even though you can use any other manager you want outside of your own firm, all of the providers that come on the platform are compensating the firm in some way. So when just big mutual fund company comes onto the broker deal platform, there's usually some kind of a compensation, some kind of a distribution fee to that brokerage firm. It's very rare, and there are cases, but it's rare that they'll take on a manager solely because that manager is so well thought of that that there is a highly discounted fee or potentially I haven't, I'm not sure I've seen any that have no fees to the firm, but there is a conflict because of that fee structure. Yeah. And we hear that a lot. So Mark, let me ask you, I know that when you guys built Luminous, you hired ex-Merrill employee, Matt Sonnen to be the COO and essentially pre-build the firm. Was that a smart move? Is it something you recommend? Yeah, it was definitely a smart move. You've got to remember when you go and you do this, you're an employee of a firm and you have limitations on what you're able to do. I think it's um, silly to think that you're going to go and start a firm, find office space, lease office space, populate it with all the right gadgets, computers and shredders and things like that, have the right cybersecurity. 
um, and, and do all the things that one needs to do to have a full service firm to land on if you leave a broker dealer without engaging somebody to do it for you. It just, you know, it, it just wouldn't be done today because you need that person who can work on your behalf. You just can't, you're not allowed to do it legally during the day. I mean, it's not, you know, you're, you're an employee of another firm, so it's just not something you're capable of doing. So we hired Matt. We knew Matt well. He used to work for us actually earlier, and then he left to do something different. Um, that was not working out, I think, as well as he wanted it to. So we gave him a call, and he knew our team intimately well and uh, was a great fit. And the notion of professional management is a, t- a hot-button topic in the industry as more and more teams break away. And they're doing one of two things. They're either outsourcing the management, so they're leveraging a service provider, which wasn't terribly popular or probably even around in, the, in 2008 when you launched Luminous, or one of the advisors, one of the principals becomes the COO or the CEO or whatnot. So that was actually also a cutting edge idea to hire professional management before you'd even built the firm. Yeah, but I think in this case, it's a little different than that. So we ended up utilizing Matt's services to found the firm and Matt sort of was our operations person. But it's, you know, David and I have been sort of investment advisors our whole career at this point. You know, we both spent 16 years in the broker-dealer model, and we'd never managed really anything, right? I mean, the firm managed the business, and we were in the advisory role. So when we founded Luminous, David and I were sort of thrust into this role of being advisors with part of our day job and managers with the other part. And, you know, David, I, I don't think I'm speaking for you when I say I don't think your and I management skills are our highest and best utility. Um, and I think to your credit, David, you recognize this early on. Um, and um, re- we brought in a friend of, of David's uh, that he had known from business school to uh, come in who had a, um, a background in private equity, but also had been on the boards of both private and public companies and had a very good sense as to what made companies successful and enabled them to grow rapidly and, and also have great sort of employee relations, have people feel like they're part of a great organization. And we brought him in as sort of a consultant. And he did, I think, a fabulous job of helping guide the firm through that first 12 months when I'm sure Dave and I would have done it effectively, but it would have been a lot of work for the best of both of us. And we are very different in our sort of thinking. So I'm not sure we would have had some tussling matches. It worked much better having a professional come in that had that was all he did was was sort of help manage the firm. And um, and so that was, we didn't have that when we started it. And I would encourage people who were thinking about starting to look for who that person's going to be at a new organization, because Dave and I jumped in to the pool and quickly found out there's a lot of decisions from a management level that need to be made when you have your own firm. Uh, and uh, And it helps having somebody that's focused on that every day, 100%. Yeah. And that's the prevailing thinking. But I think it was cutting edge thinking. It was really, I mean, people thought you lost your mind in 2008. Not only did you leave to go independent when there were this, you know, gazillion dollar transition packages to be had, but then to pay money out of pocket to hire a professional COO and a professional manager of the firm was even more outlandish. Can I just touch on that? It's important because if you, it's not outlandish. I disagree with you. If you think about what's in the client's best interest, if you're honest, truly honest about what's in the client's best interest, it's not outlandish at all. If you're thinking about personal economics, it's crazy. Yeah. But you know what? In those days, you're 100% right. Today, all that thinking is mainstream. But the independent space, the really robust independent space that we know today was just in its infancy. 
And all of that was not obvious in those days. And so when I say outlandish, I mean, people looked at what you did and thought you were crazy. It turned out you were the smart ones. That's really the bottom line, that what you did was incredibly smart and in line with prevailing thinking. It just wasn't mainstream in those days. But let me pivot, if I can, to you made wealth management history again when you sold Luminous uh, to First Republic Bank for a whopping $125 million in 2012. So I guess the first question is, I remember reading somewhere that you guys had really built Luminous from the get-go for a sale, that you you kind of knew that at some point you were going to build it and then sell it. Is that accurate? And what was behind the decision to sell Luminous to a bank? No, that's not accurate. We launched it again because we felt as though that it was a better model and it was much better for our clients and uh, much better for us, frankly. And so that was the impetus. I don't know why that notion got out there. It's it's incorrect. Originally, the founding of it was purely because we felt as though we had a better model for our clients. Now, we we weren't naive. We also felt as though if we build a great business, we'll have value there. So that's not, you know, not to say that we're just totally altruistic. It's, you know, if you're building a, a great business, you should have great value accrue over time. So we launched it really just in, in the beginnings. As you said, it was a very nascent time in the, in the industry. And we just said, look, let's just build a great business. And that's kind of how we set out to do what we set out to do. But what was behind the decision then to sell Luminous to First Republic? That was a very uh, troubling time for some of us. We, you know, a few, few of us were kind of um, not so excited to do that. But, but as a group, the, the whole ownership uh, team decided to, to make that, that transaction. As you mentioned, Mindy, a couple of times, you know, it, it was, as you mentioned, kind of uh, breaking new ground, so to speak, of, 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 of that, uh, of the industry. And so we were at that time, not really sure what the best thing to do was, right? We were building a business. We were, we were doing, a, we thought a great job. Uh, clients were resonating with the model, but there were a number of other things that came up that were, were challenges, for instance, in the lending space. We have a lot of clients who need loans. And so at the time we were struggling with how do we how do we provide these loans? And we were trying to partner with banks, we partnered with various providers. So there were basically other services that at the time we felt, okay, if there's an organization that is really boutique, really thoughtful and very put their clients' interest first, we should probably consider that. Again, we were four, four or five years into it, remember, and so we were just trying to still figure out how do we build this business out to be even better and service all of our clients' needs. And so that opportunity came, and it wasn't a slam dunk, but the organization as a whole decided to proceed with that transaction. Can I just weigh in here too? Because Please. I think you know I have a maybe a little bit of a different opinion. I was an advocate for doing this transaction with the bank. Maybe that's just a personality flaw. I like to be a builder of things. I like to, I mean, if you remember when we told the story, you know, David and I joined Merrill when there was no PBIC. There was not one there at all. There was no wealth management, high net worth business at all. Um, they gave us, they dangled this carrot to us that we could help build a high net worth business like Goldman Sachs's. And we got, I, I personally got excited about that. And I loved my 11 years at Merrill helping create PBIC today. It's one of the most successful wealth management franchises on the brokerage side of the model. And I think, David and I and my partners had a big role in helping create that. So I'm a big fan of creating what I consider to be special businesses. And the idea at the time was 
we we would still be RIAs, we would still be fiduciaries, we wouldn't have to be broker dealers. I like that. The bank was able to offer banking services and lending services that I thought were industry leading and would round out our product offering. And at the time, they really didn't have, and, and I think they would agree, First Republic, a, a significant wealth management effort. They had about 12 billion of assets. We had six. Together, we had 18. So I believed that not only would our clients greatly benefit from enhanced opportunities in banking and lending, our model wouldn't be forced to change as it often is mm -hmm. when you go to a firm that has sort of its own ideas because they really didn't have their own ideas. They had their their management offering was about the same size as ours at the time. It was, you know, you know, twice the size, but it's their small dollars if you think about it. So think about what happened. You know, six plus twelve is eighteen. We start collectively with eighteen billion. Today, I think that effort, it's seven years later, is over 150 billion. And yeah. I think we played a big role in that. So it was a fun thing to be part of. It was a great opportunity for our clients to get better things. Um, unfortunately, after the first couple of years, management, I think, got excited about what was being created and, and suddenly you know, started recruiting other teams and growing it. And we had some conversations about sort of what we thought was right for our clients and, and what they thought was right was different. And we ended up having to leave. But I, but I remember when I was in the room looking at doing this deal, I was very excited about creating something where our clients would benefit. And I think, you know, we certainly did that for the first couple of years. We just didn't think that 18 billion would grow to 150 plus billion in such a, I mean, that's an incredible story, right? And yeah. yeah. And so we, and, and as you may know, um, Mindy, we, we actually ran, helped to run the, the alternative investment division. Mm -hmm. And again, when you're sourcing alternative investments for 50, $100 million at a time investments, that demand on, when you have so much more assets under management, the demand on that platform is much larger. So it became more challenging to, again, the size issue, it becomes more challenging to find and be able to invest enough money in those kinds of things when you have that much assets. So I think it's fair to say that you guys put First Republic Wealth Management on the map. First Republic had always had a wealth management unit, but it was a sleepy one. And even though there were some advisors under the platform that were generating multi-millions in annual revenue, they were sleepy. And the firm really wasn't out there actively recruiting. And they were rarely the first choice of any top advisor looking to make a change. There is no question that the acquisition of Luminous and then followed by the acquisition of Paul Tramontano's Constellation really began to capture the attention of wirehouse advisors. That was really the beginning of it. First Republic has had great success of late in recruiting corner office wirehouse advisors. And those folks are joining because they believe it offers a significantly less bureaucratic culture than the wirehouse world with more of a boutique environment. And the firm is paying competitive transition packages. I'd love to hear what you thought about First Republic's culture and value proposition. Let me first just say that if I wasn't creating Evoke Advisors and being on our own platform, I would definitely stay at First Republic. First Republic is a great organization. The management team, you know, led by Bob Thornton on the wealth management side has done an incredible job. They really have. And the main thing, all of those things you say are true, Mindy. I think the main reason why people should consider First Republic is because the bank really tries, does try to do what's best for the client. They have been an organization that I really believe is looking out for the best interest of the client. So they definitely have, have a great platform. And 
again, the size issue is what we were concerned with. And, and um, you know, it's just harder to manage when the, when the assets are growing so quickly like that. And especially in, in some areas where, you you know, size really impairs the, the performance. So I really believe that uh, their heads and tails different from, from others. When we came over, the key thing was that we went into the RIA, right? We went from RIA at Luminous to RIA at First Republic. We did not go into the broker dealer. And for us, that was the that was a threshold item. Sticking with First Republic for a moment, you said it yourself, you were only in business four or five years before you sold to First Republic. So did First Republic come knocking or were you looking for a an acquirer, the appropriate boutique acquirer? I would answer by saying it was probably both in that lots of firms came knocking. I was surprised and I, I, I would be probably two out over my skis to say at least two a month, but it felt like at least two a month people would call up and say, I'm a private equity shop or I'm a, you know, I know I represent a bank. And, and so we were fielding these sort of inquiries and they would come in through one partner. They, and so the rarely would all of the partners meet with the opportunity and try to understand what they were trying to do. Um, David would come back and say, Oh, I just met with this guy, you know, wanted to you know, sort of look at maybe acquiring the firm and then Eric would or somebody else. So it started by people coming and knocking on our door. And once the knocks got loud enough and we felt like we should, if so many people are interested, we should explore this. We then retained professional help and went out and sort of did it, what I consider to be properly, right? If we're going to, if we're going to consider doing this, let's see what the universe looks like. Yeah. Doing it strategically. Right. We we didn't want to just ad hoc fall into something. We're we're just, we're much more, um, I think our DNA is to be proactive about things, not reactive to things in everything we do. And so this is one of those things where, our heads were sort of down. We're serving our clients and trying to grow a business. And people kept saying, you're the you know, you're prettiest girl at the dance. We should definitely you know, meet and talk about doing an acquisition. When that got to be to the extent it was, we brought in professional help to help manage that process. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, you know, we said we agree that that acquisition of Luminous really put First Republic on the map. And so I remember reading at the time that the amount that they paid to acquire Luminous was mind-boggling at the time. I mean, no one had seen a deal like that in wealth management for, you know, for a an individual business. And yet today we're watching, I mean, $125 million sale five years later is still an extraordinary deal. But the truth is today, regularly, the M&A market is incredibly robust. And every day we're reading about an acquisition because private equity acquirers, banks, any number of constituencies see wealth management and annuitized wealth business as a really good investment. Yeah. If I could just add, Mitty, on that topic, one of the sort of disappointments I had the day after we founded Evoke and all the press comes out, and I think there were four different articles written about David and I with the sort of the stilt that we ripped off the bank and that somehow they were foolish to have ever acquired us. What were they thinking to pay that much money for us in the first place? And it kind of bummed me out a little bit because to your point, I'm not suggesting for a minute we didn't have a great outcome, but but our, I think our clients got a great outcome in that we were able to service them better and give them things that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And moreover, the bank got a huge win in that we walked into a $12 million asset management business and left when it had over $150 billion. So I think it was one of those rare things in life where all the constituents benefited. And I, I like to think of it as a good outcome. We just left because we had differences strategically. And um, I get frustrated, I guess, when I hear that from people that it, somehow somebody had been taken advantage of, because I don't think that's true at all. 
Yeah, no, I don't think that's true at all. I want to pivot next to the third time you made wealth management history by leaving First Republic last year and separating from your several of your partners and forming Evoke. But I agree with you. I think that if you were to ask First Republic, they'd be one of the first to tell you it was a wonderful deal. One, because they thought you were great. You know, again, it put them on the map and everybody benefited from it. I don't think that they feel for a second that they got taken advantage of or that it was a bad deal. I know that they were disappointed to lose you, but I don't think that they regretted having bought you in the first place. I would agree with you strongly on that point. In 2008, well before going independent was the mainstream option it is today, it was really clear to Mark and David that they needed to make a move that was in the best interest of their clients, one where they could have greater control and freedom to do what they thought was best. They didn't see that as courageous, but in fact as an imperative. Then came a second move to First Republic, which allowed them to grow the business further, yet still left them feeling that there was more to be done. In our next episode, Mark and David discuss building an RIA the second time around in a world that looks very different than it did a dozen years ago. So be sure to tune in. Until then, I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. If you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management industry without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or by cell at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And a special thanks to AdvisorHub.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.